Only those who have righteous fruit inherit the kingdom. Not because righteous fruit earns anything, it doesn't, but because of what it testifies to. Um, and then we went on to show that the Bible urges us not to be passive, but to be active in our pursuit of righteous fruit in our lives. We're not to just sit back, but we are to actively pursue it. So we had a lesson, we just detailed all the motivations, or at least a handful of the motivations, that the Bible gives us to be people who pursue this in our lives. And then for the past two weeks, we've been trying to answer this final question, how ought Christians to pursue righteousness? It's true we have to pursue it, but it's also true we must pursue it in the right way, in the gospel way. Um, what separates a believer's pursuit for righteousness apart from an unbeliever's pursuit of righteousness, morality, differs drastically. And how we pursue it is absolutely essential. And that's what we've been trying to, to get at. What characterizes a Christian's obedience? Um, and then not only what characterizes our obedience, but what was, must we be careful to cultivate in our obedience. And that's what we've been talking about. Um, the first thing we said was it must be done in the Spirit. If you're a true believer, you possess the Spirit. And if you don't possess the Spirit, it's impossible to bear a single fruit of, of righteousness. Uh, you might have some morality, but it's still unpleasing to God because you're still in your flesh, which is an enmity with God. Uh, you have to have the Spirit. And, uh, if you have the Spirit, it's imperative that you walk by the Spirit. And that sort of brought us to the second point. It must be done in the strength of Christ, that is, by faith. Um, as believers indwelt by the Spirit, we must actively live by the Spirit. And we said, the way Paul says it in Romans is, how do we live by the Spirit? It's by setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. So what does it mean to be a person led by the Spirit, living by the strength of Christ? It means to be a person of faith, but not just general faith, oh yeah, I believe, but a faith specifically acted on the work of Christ for us and all that he has promised to us. I pursue righteousness, I fight sin, my faith in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me and all of that, all that that guarantees for my life as a blood-bought sinner. I fight sin by faith in his word as it applies to me. A blood-bought sinner. And then last week, um, we, we looked at number three on your outline. It must be done out of a love for God. We pursue righteousness and obedience out of a love for God. Uh, it's not cold obedience that we're talking about. We're not just saying you just just obey. There's no affection at all in it. Um, it's true love for God is evidenced by a careful obedience, but careful obedience must be mixed with an affection for God. And we were in 1 John chapter 5 for most of our time last week, and this is what John said. He said, this is the love of God. This is what it means to love God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not what? They're not burdensome. They're not a drudgery. Um, yeah, we're in the flesh, 
still, we have that old nature fighting against us, and it's not always easy, but there, there, there's a delight there because we love God. We've been set free from the world. Uh, there's a desire for Him. Um, so that, that's what it means to pursue obedience out of the love of God. It's connected with a love for God, a delight in God, and therefore a delight in obedience. Um, love for God looks like desiring Him and pursuing obedience out of a delight in and it also must include a true love for man. Um, you, pursue, you can't say you're pursuing obedience out of love of God if there's no true love for man. You could be doing all the spiritual things that look like you're loving God, but if there's no sacrificial love for the brothers in your life, John calls us to re-examine, do we really have that love for God? Um, that's where we were last week. Um, this week, we're going to be on number four in the outline. It's that Christian obedience must be done to the glory of God. Not only does the Holy Spirit, faith, and a love for God make our obedience genuine and pleasing to God and so different from unbelievers, but the purpose of our obedience and the goal of our obedience is absolutely essential, and it's what differs so greatly from anything the world has or does. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be flipping all over the place today. Um, we'll start here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sell no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Jesus is contrasting the false righteousness of man with the genuine righteousness of his disciples. We already saw that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, those who inherit the kingdom are those who possess a righteousness that's greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the first thing he said back in chapter 5 is what that means is that it's an internal righteousness. It's not just merely external conformity to the law. I don't murder and I don't commit adultery. It's a righteousness that consists of the internal realities as well. You, you don't lust and you're not full of anger and revenge. And then Jesus goes on here to say what else is exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is your purpose, is your motivation in doing what you are doing. Man, who does not have a relationship with God, every bit of his righteousness is this. It's to be done for the praise of men in order to be seen by man. In other words, unless you are a disciple of Christ, unless you are someone who has that relationship with the Father, true righteousness is absolutely impossible. Because... You have no way to do it for his glory. Because you don't have a relationship with him. I mean, just look. Father, Father, Father is all the way through here in the Sermon on the Mount. 
is what you must have. And so any righteousness morality of the world falls ultimately short for all the reasons we are, have already talked about, and especially this reason. Because they don't do it for the glory of God. They do it for the glory of self, ultimately. Only disciples are able to produce genuine fruit of righteousness because only disciples are able to do it for the glory of God. Because they have a relationship with their Father. Flip back to chapter 5, verse 16. Look what Jesus says. This is the paradigm. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Your good works. Disciples have good works. And they're being seen by others. But what's happening? And give glory to who? Father. Who is in heaven. So that is what a genuine disciple looks like. And that's why those who are not disciples, who don't have a relationship with the Father through Christ, are unable to produce a genuine piece of righteous fruit. But just as with the other characteristics that we've talked about, the Spirit, faith, and love, they're things that automatically characterize Christians and that make our obedience genuine obedience. But at the same time, we don't just sit back and say, okay, that, that characterizes a, a Christian automatically. These are things we are intentional about cultivating. We're intentional about walking in by the Spirit. Intentional about living by faith. Intentional about being people filled with love and a delight in God and expressing that love to, to others. And the same is true for this. We don't just say, I have a relationship with God, therefore my obedience automatically glorifies Him. We are intentional about making sure our pursuit for righteousness glorifies our Father. And so the question is, okay, well, how do you do that? How can I make sure that my pursuit of righteous fruit, like we're commanded to pursue, is genuinely glorifying to God? That He is the goal of what I am doing. So that's what I want to do this morning, is to sort of unpack um, that question. How... Do I pursue the glory of God in my pursuit of righteousness? And I think the answer is that if we pursue righteousness by the above-mentioned ways, by the Spirit, by faith, and by love, it will redound to the glory of God. And that's what I want to prove to you this morning. If we are pursuing righteousness out of the above-mentioned ways that we should be, it will redound to God's glory, and it will redound to our utmost humility. So that's what I want to work through this morning. So the first thing you can see on your outline, righteousness pursued through the Spirit. That was the first thing we said. Through the Spirit removes any ground for boasting, since ultimately everything comes through the work of His Spirit. I need your help to look up a few passages. Can somebody read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29 to 31? Who can get that? First Corinthians 1, 29 to 31. Who got it? I, I, I'll just hand them out and then, okay, get that. All right, uh, First Corinthians 4, 7. Who can get that? All right, Paul. And then First uh, Corinthians 15, 10. All right, Paul. And then Philippians 2, 12 to 13. All right, that's excellent. Okay, all right, so listen to these and, and how Paul goes out after destroying uh, any ground for boasting in a believer's life. Um, and it comes back to the spirit. All right. Um, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, you are in Christ, Jesus, 
who became for us wisdom of God, wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. There's absolutely no room for boasting since everything we have is from Christ. And from Him you're in Christ. The very reason I'm in Christ is God's doing. And everything I have is from the work of Christ in me. Um, 1 Corinthians 4 7. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And in fact, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Paul here is talking in the, the context of uh, spiritual leaders, different leaders that you have, but it applies to all of Christian life. Everything you have is a gift. And it's a gift. How, how do you boast? If you're boasting, you're acting like it's not a gift. Everything we have must be viewed through that lens. First Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Yeah, this is a verse of paradigm of Paul. We're going to come back to this. Paul says, I labored more than any of them. So doesn't that, that at least give Paul little ground for boasting? He says, no, because even that labor was not I, but it was Christ in me. Even our labors for sanctification are owing to Christ. There's no room for boasting. Philippians 2, 12-13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There it is. Labor, work, strive for this, because God is doing it. Any of your labor that you're doing, it's your labor, but it's ultimately owing to God. There's no room for boasting. Flip over to Second Thessalonians. I want to look at this passage for a minute with you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul is talking about the return of Christ, the judgment of the wicked when Christ returns, the salvation of his people. Um, look at how he connects the uh, glory of Christ with uh, God's work and believer's labor. He says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints... And to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. And then Paul prays. To this end, we always pray for you, that God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good, and every work of faith, work of faith, labor of faith, by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that the glory of Christ is the end goal of what he is praying for, for these believers uh, when Christ comes, he'll be glorified in the saints. And then in verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified. And then, then verse 11, Paul shows how this works. He prays for this. Look at what characterizes a believer's life. Look what he says. They make a resolve for good. They resolve, they determine to pursue good, good works, a life of righteousness. They resolve to do it. 
And they don't just resolve to do it, but look what they do. They labor. They work. Where's that work coming from? It's coming from faith. Believers strive and resolve to pursue good works from faith in Christ. But, but notice where the ultimate source is coming from. Look what Paul says. Back in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he called them to walk in a manner worthy of his calling. And then look at verse 11 here. Look who does the fulfilling of it. It says that, that God may make you worthy of his calling. God is doing this. And the believers are making a resolve for good, but who's fulfilling it? That God would fulfill every resolve in you. And whose power is it ultimately? It is by his power. Oh, and then in verse 12, it's ultimately redounding to whose glory? Ultimately redounding to the glory of Christ. So what's so helpful about this passage is it brings together our labor that's coming from faith that is ultimately grounded in Christ's working and his doing. And whose glory is it going to redound to? It's not going to go to mind. It's going to go to Christ's. That's exactly what's, what's going on here. Paul never says, let go and let God. Just sit back and let him work. And neither does he say, you do part and God will do part. Neither are part of Pauline theology. But he says believers must strive with all their might to pursue good works. And that in their striving, God is working. It's all God's work and it's all your work. Pursue this. And so we have nothing we can boast in because even after all of our work and effort, it's all Christ. That's exactly what we saw in 1 Corinthians 15:10. We labor even more than others, maybe, but even that is coming from his doing in us. So I just want to think about this for a minute. Chew on it. How does this look in, in everyday life? We resolve and labor to the point of exhaustion in our life for good works. That's what we must do. That's what's going on here. But it's a labor that's mixed with a dependence on the grace of God and his power at work in us. Look what Paul calls it. It's a work of faith. A work that's coming from faith. A work that's empowered by faith in his power, in his spirit. We labor depending on his spirit that he's given us. So what does it look like practically? Um, I can think of a couple things. First thing, it's labor that's mixed with prayerful dependence. This is a prayer. Paul is praying this to give us a model. We labor with prayerful dependence. So I not only pursue righteous works, but I pursue it prayerfully. So I resolve, I'm going to love my wife sacrificially. I resolve that in my heart. I resolve to deny myself for her good. And then I begin and continue in this pursuit by praying, relying on God to create this very thing in my life. So in the morning I get up and I pray, Lord, this morning I am resolving to pursue sacrificial love to my wife. To die to myself for her good. Lord, fulfill this resolve in me by your power. So that Christ 
may be glorified, and so that I might have a life that's worthy of his, him and his salvation towards me. And then I go to the breakfast table, and the baby's crying, and the sink is full of dirty dishes, and there's stuff laying everywhere, and I have my day planned out, and I have what I want to do next. I want to eat and get going. And then my wife asks me, can you feed the baby? Can you help me out? Um, and at that moment, I just I don't, I don't sit there and wait for the lightning bolt, and I don't just wait for God to just sort of push me out of my seat. Sometimes my heart wants to do the exact opposite. I want to eat and run. But what do I do in that moment? I labor against my flesh, which just wants to get up and go. What do I do? I get up and I fix the baby's food. But how do I do it? I do it in prayerful dependence. Lord, help me. Lord, by your power, I am relying on you. And I'm going to fix the baby's breakfast, and I'm going to get to work. But all the while, I'm praying. It's full of a prayerful dependence. But it goes beyond that. It's not just a prayerful dependence. It's a labor that's mixed with faith. Paul calls it a labor of faith. So I get up and fix the baby's breakfast in faith in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. I get up and I sacrificially serve my wife by faith in Christ who loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I apply the promises specifically to my wife. So yes, we labor, we deny ourselves, but we do it in faith, in prayerful dependence. And that way, God is glory. He's glorified. Why? Because it's clear, this is not coming from me. Yeah, I'm putting forth the labor, but even that labor is motivated by what? It's motivated by His power. It's motivated by dependence on Him. It's motivated by His promises and His work for me. That is how our labors redound in the glory of God. So put it this way, if we begin to boast, if we begin to be proud of our good works and want to be praised by man for them, then it's clear we have forgotten the source. It's clear we have been doing them out of self-reliance and of self-faith, not out of reliance on God. Pride and self-glory are clear evidences of faithlessness and self-reliance. As soon as we see self-glory in our life, it should be a red light flashing, an alarm going off. You are not relying on Christ. You are not depending on His Spirit and power. Because if you were, it would not result in self-glory and praise. We must be aware for that tendency in our heart and call it out for what it is. It is self-glory that is rooted in self-reliance. That's not true righteousness. So as we pursue this, we must do two things. We must be consciously casting ourselves on God's strength as we pursue righteousness, depending on Him in prayer, depending on Him in His promises, in His word, and what He's done for us. And we must be constantly preaching to ourselves that any fruit I have is the result of His work. And therefore I have nothing I can boast of. This truth should make us the most humble people in the world. And the, the irony is, is that the people who are most righteous, genuinely righteous, should be the most humble. Why? It's because where did their fruit come from? It came from God's working. And they realize that. Because they know there's nothing in themselves. And they know I've been relying on God all the way up to this point. 
But false righteousness doesn't work like that. Why? It's because it's man-made. It's not done in reliance on, on God. So you can look at Romans 12, um, 3. Uh, Paul says a very similar thing. But let's move on. Go quickly here. Number two. Righteousness pursued through faith and Christ's strength redounds to God's glory since its focus is on God alone. Very similar to what we just what we just said. 1 Peter 4.11 says, Let him who serve do it in the strength that God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified. John Piper says that the giver gets the glory. We serve in reliance on the strength of Christ, so that he gets the glory. Faith glorifies God. Look over at Romans chapter 4, verse 19. Talking about Abraham here. It's in the nature of faith to give glory to God. As we live a life of faith, it, in essence, gives glory to God. It says, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. How did he give glory to God? Look at verse 21. By being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. As we pursue sanctification out of confidence in God's promises, Abraham was confident God promised what he promised, and it motivated him to work. So we pursue sanctification that way, it's going to redound to whose glory? God's. Because it is fully relying on Him and exalting His trustworthiness, His goodness, His worthiness. It casts oneself on Him as one's only hope. Number three. Righteousness pursued out of a love for God and a love for man glorifies God since it denies self it comes through God's work alone. So this is the third thing we mentioned. We pursue it out of love for God. And if you do it, it will glorify God. Look over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You know this verse, 1031. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to what? The glory of God. What's interesting about this verse is that it comes at a conclusion of a whole section in 1 Corinthians that's about love. The Corinthians, the stronger ones, are wanting to eat food offered to idols, which Paul says, you buy it at the meat market, it's fine, eat it. But they're eating it in, or, in an unloving way. And it's wounding the consciences of these people who used to be idol worshippers, and they're leading them back into doing what they feel is, is, is a sin. And they're, they're abusing other believers. You're not loving them. It's not doing it to the glory of God. And Paul is calling them to live to the glory of God in every arena, even the most minutest thing, in, in eating and drinking. And the way they will do it is by loving one another. We must pursue God's glory in every aspect of life, and the way we do it is by denying self and loving others for no reason other than for Christ. 
we love other believers out of a love for Christ. We love other believers because of what Christ has done for us, made us one. We love other believers sacrificially in order to help them please Christ. That's how we glorify God, eating and drinking. That's how we glorify God in every minute aspect of life. That's what Paul is calling us to. So we, we are about out of time, 1014. Um, there's a lot more we can say, a lot more I had ready. Um, chew on these things. Um, this has been my goal um, through this whole thing, is that we live by the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. We approach God's law differently now as people with the Spirit, the people that don't have it. If you don't have the Spirit, you can't do anything that we've talked about. But if you have the Spirit, you're able now to make progress in actually fulfilling God's law. Not as a foundation of your salvation, but as evidence to it. We must consciously live by the Spirit and the strength of Christ, consciously examine our motives to see if they're being done out of love for God, and consciously live to the glory of God. So uh, before you put your outlines away, look at the back of your outline. I have some diagnostic questions. We went over them last week. Um, Encourage you to uh, read through them, think through them. Look at the first one. I mentioned it last week. I'll mention it again because we talked about prayer this morning. What do I pray for? Are my prayers filled with requests for righteous fruit in my life and in the lives of others? That's a big evidence if I'm really pursuing righteousness and if I pursue it in the right way. What do you pray for? Are your prayers saturated with Lord, help me. Created me, heart that pursues righteousness and do it in the lives of others, or is it mainly about surface level things? That's what Paul prayed for in Second Thessalonians, and most of his prayers are for that. And then drop your eyes down to the, the last thing: Do I pursue righteousness to the glory of God? What we talked about this morning. Chew on the other questions there later today, but think of these here. Am I filled with joy and thanksgiving to God when I obey and no one notices? Do I only seek good works when they will get noticed by man? It's an evidence. Am I really pursuing righteousness for the glory of God, for His praise, relying on Him alone so that He would be pleased? That's all I want is for Him to be pleased. Am I quick to repent when I see self-glory in my life? When I see that desire and longing for the praise of men at my righteous fruit, do I call it what it is? I am clearly not relying on Christ because I'm wanting self-glory. Do I preach to myself what self-glory evidences and that there's no room for boasting in my life? Do I preach to myself that the that not only is the fruit the result of God's grace, but even my labor is the result of God's work in my life. Do I preach that to myself? Am I proud of my accomplishments? Do I look down on others who have not progressed to where I am? <laughs> I say progress because if I'm looking down on others, I probably haven't progressed that much. And then finally, rather than despise others, am I willing to come alongside and help others pursue Christ? So... Take these, chew on these, examine our hearts because we're still in the flesh and we're pursuing genuine righteousness, but man, I still have much righteousness that's self-made, that's unpleasing to Christ, and therefore it can't be a, a foundation. Um, so that's it. Any any questions, um, comments? Yes, Mr. Ryan.
one aspect that seems to me would fit here. Jesus said, uh, if you give a cup of cold water in my name, I've seen a lot of humanitarian efforts being made that don't look that different from what yep. we as Christians do. But we don't do it in the name of Christ. I think this is where the testimony comes in. And so when I do something to help someone, I do it, I try to make an effort of telling them that I'm doing it because I'm a Christian, I'm a servant of the Lord. That's why I'm doing this. Yep. So he gets the Lord. I do it in his name. We, we, we said last week for First John, John says, this is how, we, first he said, this is how we know we love God when we love others. And then he flips it. He says, this is how we know we love one another. This is how we know that we're really loving these people we're giving cold water to. He says, when we love God and keep his commandments. So you are not loving other people if you're not doing it from a love for God and a love for his commandments. You're making people comfortable on their way to hell. And that is not love. You're only loving others when you're doing it from a love for God and the delight in His commandments. And uh, so that's, that's very good. Uh, you're doing it in the name of Christ. And I think that includes everything we said. You're doing it in the Spirit, by faith in Christ, for His glory and out of love for Him. So, excellent. Any other questions, comments? So pursue it. Pursue righteousness this week. But do it in the Spirit. Do it by faith. Do it in love of God and for His glory. And... Uh, Examine your heart with these uh, questions.